Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. So I'm, I'm very honoured to speak on the subject of vocation of the author to this most Latin of English uh, uh, Catholic institutions. And I speak from the slightly surprising to me uh, position of having been asked to guide two rather venerable organisations with an important place in the British Catholic literary scene. The first being the Catholic Truth Society, a product of the Catholic emancipation and re-establishment of the hierarchy in the 1860s, um, founded by Cardinal Vaughan and still going strong 150 years later, and the second being recently appointed as Master of the Keys, um, the Catholic Writers Guild, founded in the middle of the interwar Catholic literary revival by Chesterton and his circle, and again still going strong 90 years later. Um, I'll speak in particular about the mission of the British Catholic writer in the English language. Now, as the son of immigrants to the UK who came in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War from Poland and Italy, in one sense I feel like an interloper speaking about this, but in another, the Catholic Church was always the first port of call for those looking for a home away from home. My father arrived as a teenage boy from a Neapolitan village in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, and having recently arrived in North London, he knocked at the presbytery of St. Joseph's Highgate Hill on the 17th of March in 1953 and introduced himself in a heavily accented, halting English. The Irish curate who opened the door proceeded to upbraid him for not wearing a shamrock on the great feast of St. Patrick. Um, This was the Catholic Church, um, but not as he knew it. Uh, What on earth was a shamrock? It's interesting that the church, in her wisdom, made provision for the culture shock of arriving at another particular church, even when the liturgy was in a universal language, through ethnic chaplaincies, and the faith of both my parents was nurtured by the Scalabrini Fathers' Italian mission and the Polish mission in London. However, something I often say to those in the institutional church who resent what they see as a lack of integration of foreign chaplaincies, Polish, Brazilian, Sri Lankan at the moment, is that these tend to be a one-generation phenomenon. The children of immigrants either become part of the local church or become part of the great indistinguished mass of ex-Catholics. My transition to becoming an English Catholic came especially by way of two things, I'd say. One was the recognition of the heroic witness of so many martyrs who died to be able to celebrate the Mass and the sacraments. And the second was an appreciation of the literary contribution, especially of the Catholics of the interwar Catholic literary revival, Chesterton, Belloc, War, Green, to name but a few. Now, this interest in in literature is a gift from my father. His mother was a barely literate Neapolitan woman, born in the shadow of the Vesuvius at the beginning of the 20th century. And she had never, in fact, learned to speak Italian, let alone read it, but spoke the beautiful and almost uniquely poetic Neapolitan dialect. As she put her son on the train to begin his long, slow journey to London, um, she gave him a vinyl recording of 
one of the beautiful poems by Salvatore Di Giacomo, set to achingly beautiful music, which were the preferred reminders of home for those leaving the beautiful but desperately poor Bay of Naples to find their fortunes in Argentina, New York or London. He remembers her asking, Ma quando arriva Londra, sona sempre in Napolitano, which means, when you arrive in London, will the record still play in Neapolitan? Despite uh, following the well-known, the well-trodden path for many Italians into the restaurant trade in London, my father kept and keeps to this day a ferocious love of poetry and literature. He eventually trained to be a teacher, and as I grew up, he'd encouraged me to read the classics and taught me how to approach them by quoting the following from Niccolò Machiavelli. When evening comes, I return home and go into my study. On the threshold, I strip off my muddy, sweaty workday clothes and put on the robes of court and palace. And in this grave address, I enter the antique courts of the ancients and am welcomed by them. And there I taste the food that alone is mine and for which I was born. And there I make bold to speak to them and ask the motives of their actions. And they, in their humanity, reply to me. And for the space of four hours, I forget the world Remember no vexation, fear poverty no more, tremble no more at death. I pass indeed into their world. So when I entered the world of books, my father was more than happy. However, this aesthetic appreciation of the beauty of the written word has, especially in the Catholic world, fallen, I would say, to a uniquely low ebb. <laughs> the American Catholic poet and critic Dana Joya wrote the following last year of the situation in the States, which could just as easily apply in the UK. And I quote, stated simply, the paradox is that although Roman Catholicism constitutes the largest religious and cultural group in the United States, Catholicism currently enjoys almost no positive presence in the fine arts, not in literature, music, sculpture or painting. This situation not only represents a demographic paradox, it also marks a major historical change, an impoverishment, indeed even a disfigurement for Catholicism, which has for two millennia played a hugely formative and inspirational role in the arts." End quote. Joya does not see the renaissance of Catholic writing happening within the institutional church, and having observed the church over the past 60 years, who can argue with him? He continues, the notion that the Catholic hierarchy will make literature and the arts a priority and then exercise good judgment in supporting them exceeds all credulity. <laughs> so where will it come from? Well, the answer is surely among us, the laity, whose apostolate is to bring Christ into the world where we live and work. Mother Church certainly holds up for us great examples to emulate and guidelines to follow in our mission. Pope Pius XI, a man bookish enough to be called to Rome by Pope St. Pius X to be prefect of the papal library, provided just that. In 1923, on the third centenary of his death, he held up St. Francis de Sales as the exemplar for all Catholic writers. 
In a comparatively, and in comparison with recent emulations from Rome, or emanations from Rome rather, mercifully brief encyclical letter entitled Rerum Omnium Perturbationem, Pius XI took the opportunity to declare St. Francis de Sales as heavenly patron of all writers and outlined the following, and I quote, It is our wish that the greatest fruits should be gained from this solemn centenary by those Catholics who, as journalists and writers, expound, spread, and defend the doctrines of the Church. It is necessary that they, in their writings, imitate and exhibit at all times that strength joined always to moderation and charity, which was the special characteristic of St. Francis. He, by his example, teaches them in no uncertain manner precisely how they should write. In the first place, and this is the most important of all, each writer should endeavour in every way, and as far as this may be possible, to obtain a complete comprehension of the teachings of the church. They should never compromise where the truth is involved, nor, because of fear of possibly offending an opponent, minimise or dissimulate it. They should pay particular attention to literary style, and should try to express their thoughts clearly and in beautiful language so that their readers will be more readily, uh, sorry, so that their readers will the more readily come to love the truth. When it is necessary to enter into a controversy, they should be prepared to refute error and to overcome the wiles of the wicked, but always in a way that will demonstrate clearly that they are animated by the highest principles and moved only by Christian charity. So Pope Pius sets out three main lodestars, shall we say, for the Catholic author. Fidelity to the, ter- to the church's teaching in its entirety and without compromise. Clarity and beauty of style and charity and controversy. At this point, I think it's important to emphasise that the Catholic author in the English-speaking world has a particularly difficult mission, which I think we can divide into two parts. Firstly, to speak to a culture in which, which in many ways is way ahead of the rest of the world in terms of secularization. And secondly, to repair a culture which in its art and literature has been completely dislocated from its Catholic Christian roots. When John Paul II first coined the expression the new evangelization in his 1983 encyclical Redemptoris Missio, he had first spoken of the Missio ad gentes to those who had never heard the gospel, then of the pastoral activity and care of the church to the fervent supporting to the fervent supporting and instructing them further in the faith. He then mentioned a third area of mission. There is an intermediate uh, situation, I quote, particularly in countries with ancient Christian roots and occasionally in the younger churches as well, where entire groups of the baptised have lost a living sense of the faith or even no longer consider themselves members of the church and live a life far removed from Christ and his gospel. In this case, what is needed is a new evangelization or a re-evangelization, end quote. Though famously he spoke of uh, this new evangelization, new in its ardor, methods and expression, I think that many, almost 40 years later, um, we are still struggling to find the content to which these words can apply. 
In a sense, this third area of mission has proved to be the most difficult. C.S. Lewis recognised this already in the middle of the 20th century. In the 1950s, Lewis began a correspondence with an Italian priest called Don Giovanni Calabria, who had been most impressed with Lewis's insights after reading a translation of the Screwtape Letters. Since Don Calabria didn't speak English and Lewis could not speak Italian, their correspondence was conducted entirely in Latin. Commenting on what Don Calabria said was Europe's return to paganism, Lewis wrote, and I quote, I certainly feel that the very grave dangers hang over us. This results from the great apostasy of the great part of Europe from the Christian faith. Hence, a worse state than the one we were in before we received the faith. For no one returns from Christianity to the same state he was in before. But into a worse state. The difference between a pagan and an apostate is the difference between an unmarried woman and an adulteress. Therefore, many of our time have lost not only the supernatural light, but also the natural light which the pagans possessed. Thus, Lewis recognised that the fallen away were almost uniquely inured or vaccinated, shall we say, against the good news. And he carried on. But God, who is the God of mercies, even now has not altogether cast off the human race. We must not despair. And among us are not an inconsiderable number now returning to the faith. For my part, I believe we ought to work not only at spreading the gospel, that certainly, but also to a certain preparation for the gospel. It is necessary to recall many to the law of nature before we talk about God. For Christ promises forgiveness of sins, but what is that to those who, since they do not know the law of nature, do not know that they have sinned? Who will take medicine unless he knows he is in the grip of a disease? Quite a lot of people, it seems. Anyway, um, moral relativity is the enemy we have to overcome before we tackle atheism. I would almost dare to say, first let us make the younger generations good pagans, and afterwards let us make them Christians. The situation Lewis describes has progressed at an astounding pace. The law of nature is, designed, is denied so regularly and blatantly that even ordinary men and women, I think, are beginning to push back. We're at a point where works of art, which accord to the natural law, are so few and far between as to seem almost shocking when you come across them. The 2008 film A Quiet Place is a case in point. In it, a family struggle to survive in a post-apocalyptic world inhabited by blind monsters with an acute sense of hearing. The mother and father of two children struggle against the tragic loss to rebuild their lives, culminating in a dramatic scene of self-sacrifice to bring into the world a new child. The message is so wholesome and natural that one wonders how the film ever made it to production. <laughs> we'll come back to the revolutionary nature of adherence to reality later. The second more stylistic challenge is articulated beautifully by Newman when speaking of the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I quote, Some features of Hopkins' style can be understood as attempts at a repair of and a reparation for the language which he felt had been wounded by the schism from Rome. 
Hopkins' distinctive way of dwelling on a word as if he were naming it rather than saying it has a tenderness in it towards the language itself. It seems he feels the language needs to be cosseted back into harmony with itself. The Catholic writer almost uh, always, sorry, the Catholic writer always seems almost unconsciously to be searching for the true connections of a phrase, a saying, a place name to the deeper history of our country. And not only a connection to our history, but also to what really matters. As the novelist Hilary Mantel said, I think that nowadays the Catholic Church is not an institution for respectable people. Perhaps one of the truer things she has said. In an English establishment culture where bringing up religion is akin to farting in a lift, I often return to one of Hilaire Belloc's um, uh, most important insights. Something he originally heard from Cardinal Manning, that, like it or not, all human conflict is ultimately theological. The same insight is at play in Brighthead Revisited when Charles Ryder, the classic English agnostic, gets increasingly frustrated by his experience among Catholics of the impossibility of having any discussion that does not in the end return to religion. I think this is the reason why discussions with other Catholics are such a blessed relief, that in the end we share fundamental terms of reference, something non-Catholics just can't understand. I'm often reminded of the hilarious passage in J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. I'm not going to attempt like a Southern American accent. Um, I knew this one Catholic boy, Louis Shaney, when I was at the Wooden School. Then, after a while, right in the middle of the goddamn conversation, he asked me, did you happen to notice where the Catholic Church is in town by any chance? The thing was, you could tell by the way he asked me that he was trying to find out if I was a Catholic. He really was. Not that he was prejudiced or anything, but he just wanted to know. He was enjoying the conversation about tennis and all, but you could tell he would have enjoyed it more if I was a Catholic. A further difficulty, stylistically, is related to the times in which we live and the degradation of the very language we speak. Robert Royal, in his exploration of 20th century Catholic thought, regrets the fact that the very moment in which the liturgy and the lectionary were translated into vernacular English was the very moment in which an English language debased by the Beatles and television was no longer capable of expressing anything transcendent. A point grudgingly admitted, I think, by the translators of the 2011 edition of the Roman Missal. And even the switch to the ESV uh, in the lectionary for the Novus Ordo, which will happen next year, with its roots in the King James Bible. The same point was made by Chesterton half a century earlier. English Catholicism, having in the great calamity of our history gone into exile in the 16th and 17th centuries, at the very moment when our modern language was being finally made, naturally had to seek for its own finest enthusiasms in foreign languages. And it translated those things back into a language with which the exile had lost touch and in which his taste was not quite firm and sure. Indeed, the 17th and 18th centuries are equally difficult years for English as a language of literature 
a nation which had suffered the artistic ravages and literary genocide of Puritanism, bounced back with the Restoration plays, which are as full of rhetorical and stylistic fireworks as they are empty of meaning and seriousness, while on the other end of the scale we have to suffer the stodgy anti-Catholicism of Pilgrim's Progress. I'm always fascinated by the fact that in the entire 18th century not a single cathedral was built in Britain, and with the honourable exception of William Blake, not a lot of edifying literature was undertaken either. The expulsion of religion from polite society is one of the explanations for the dominant position, I would say, of Irish writers in the canon of 19th century English literature. I remember being rather surprised when I arrived at a venerable Anglican grammar school to study English literature at A-level, and then proceeded to spend the first year reading Congreve, Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, Seamus Heaney and Brian Friel. The Catholic revival of the early 20th century went even further to healing the rift between style and content, something which Pope Pius insists on, in, uh, insists is key to the Catholic writer's successful uh, fulfilment of his mission, that clarity and beauty which will lead people to the truth but always in charity. This highlights a common pitfall for Catholic writers and editors. Impeccable orthodoxy or pious intentions cannot substitute or make up for bad writing. A few years ago, um, when I was uh, working as a commissioning editor at CTS, we received a, a manuscript on sexual ethics for young people. The author was a passionate speaker who had been to countless schools to speak on this most difficult of subjects to some acclaim. He'd summarised his talks into a book-length manuscript, which was, frankly, unreadable. We wondered if copious editing and copy-editing and ghost-writing could rescue the book. But to paraphrase a comment by Flannery O'Connor, the Catholic writer doesn't have to be a saint. He doesn't even have to be Catholic. He does, unfortunately, have to be a writer. <laughs> the... Um, so I'm going to speak a bit about the vocation of the, of the publisher and, and a Catholic publisher and writer in the world of, of the internet. A further danger in, in this world dominated by clickbait headlines and social media algorithms is the value to a publisher of an online following. A few years back, my wife and I were asked to co-author a text on Catholic hospitality. When the proposal form arrived, we noticed a strange new emphasis there was barely a page for a synopsis and several pages for all kinds of details and statistics to do with our social media presence. How many friends did we have on Facebook? How many followers on Instagram? How many friends did our friends have on Facebook? And how many people read our blog? What was clear is that a bad author who was active on social media was greatly to be preferred to a good one who lives in the real world. This is not to underplay the commercial realities of modern publishing, but simply to point out the fact that the market, I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear, is not exactly setting up an ideal environment for good writing to rise to the top. As editor of some seven or 800 books in my quarter century in publishing, at this point, let me say a word about the most holy mission of the editor. One of the greatest tragedies of the internet age has been the mountainous avalanche of unedited work with which the world has been submerged. 1.4 million self-published books were dumped onto Amazon last year. It would take 82 years 
to watch all the videos uploaded to, to YouTube in the last hour. Most of this content is the un, are the unfiltered thoughts of the general public. I was speaking to an actress who, during the desperate months of lockdown when theatres and film sets were closed, had turned her skills to recording audiobooks. Many of these were self-published, and despite her complete lack of an income, she said they were just unreadable um, due to style, or content, or um, even more often, both. I recently read in the acknowledgments of a book by Alice von Hildebrand one of the few true appreciations of the skill of an editor. The true editor is one who is so per perceptive that he intuits an author's intentions even though they are clumsily formulated. He reverently and intelligently reads the text and while inserting no opinions of his own, truly fulfills the author's intention. I think we can all agree that over the years, the philosophical school of phenomenology to which von Hildebrand belongs has suffered from the dearth of such editors. <laughs> However, I would say that the, ed the editor's true service to a grateful world happens long before that stage. Often a rejection letter protects would-be authors from making fools of themselves in public and protects the public from being subjected to the foolishness of the would-be author. What the restoration of Chris Christendom probably does not need are the rambling homilies of Father O'Boyle collected together by a fawning and overzealous parish secretary. <laughs> when it comes to authors who are men of the cloth, it's often a great advantage to publishers to work with members of religious orders. They must often go through a process of textual approval with their superiors, who will check that the texts abide by whatever the orthodoxies du jour of that religious congregation. One of, the strictest, one of the strictest systems is run by the Society of Jesus, which just goes to show that process is no substitute for personnel. <laughs> um, it's, it's the beginning uh, of all true criticism, says Chesterton. It's the beginning of all true criticism of our time to realise that it has really nothing to say. At the very moment when it has invented so tremendous a trumpet for saying it. I think that Chesterton here was referring to the mechanised printing presses which churned out daily and evening papers in ever greater numbers and at higher speeds than ever before. This reminds me, in fact, of, a, of when I went to, uh, to the factory that, that prints the, um, the liturgical books for CTS, which is in, in Trent. Uh, we went in, in 2011 to see the, the, the new Roman Missal on the press. It was printed on these huge web presses that are capable of printing 45,000 copies of a book in an hour. And they, uh, they need to print 1,000 copies of a book before the machine is even warmed up and the ink evenly spread. The machine minders wheeled up a large skip to the end of the printing line, and I watched the first 1,000 copies of the newly translated Novus Ordo in English plop into a skip to be wheeled away for immediate pulping. <laughs> Imagine what Chesterton would say today when our time, sorry, when our time has even less to say and a trumpet which blares its inanities to the entire world can be uh, set into motion at the touch of a button. Of course, it's not quite as simple as that. Back in the heady days of 2013, Pope, uh, Pope Benedict delivered a speech for World Communications Day entitled 
social networks, portals of truth and faith, new spaces for evangelization. A touching, if in hindsight, somewhat naive idea. But I think during the brief floruit of authentically Catholic blogs, there truly was a digital agora. A space, and I quote here, a space in which new relationships and forms of community can come into being. These spaces, when engaged in a wise and balanced way, help to foster forms of dialogue and debate which, if conducted respectfully and with concern for privacy, responsibility and truthfulness, can reinforce the bonds of unity between individuals and effectively promote the harmony of the human family. The exchange of information can become true communication. Links ripen into friendships and connections facilitate communion. If the networks are called to realise this great potential, the people involved in them must make an effort to be authentic, since in these spaces it is not only ideas and information that are shared, but ultimately our very selves. One of the features uh, of the current pontificate is that we've seen most of these blogs slowly empty. To quote Isaiah, how doth the city solitary sit that was full of people? And the digital agora has turned into something more akin to a digital coliseum, where you go to view and occasionally take part in the gladiatorial blood sports of rad trads fighting hyper-uber ultramontanists to the death, or at least until the next papal in-flight press conference. Wisdom, balance and respect are rare commodities, especially on Twitter. But how can one stay quiet when there is someone on social media being wrong? <laughs> More seriously, it's interesting to see that in his encyclical, written almost exactly 100 years ago, Pius XI warned against diluting the truth for fear of giving offence. They should never compromise where the truth is involved, nor, because of fear of possibly offending an opponent, minimise or dissimulate it, he said to writers. This is especially germane given the very live debate swirling around at the moment regarding cancel culture, which is going through a phase of aggressive enforcement and gaslighting at the same time. I was on the BBC website the other day to check the, the cricket scores and in, in Pride of Place was an interview between Louis Theroux and the comedian Frankie Boyle entitled Does Cancel Culture Exist? The programme took surprisingly long to answer a simple question. The Overton window is being narrowed to places where Catholics simply cannot go. It's been amazing to watch um, people from Keir Starmer to Rishi Sunak to the latest US Supreme Court nomination squirm and juggle the hottest of hot potatoes when asked that most inflammatory and potentially career-ending question, what is a woman? Let alone answering subsequent questions which are more interesting and far more controversial, what is a woman or, for that matter, a man for? I'm not a great letter writer as a rule, but I felt the need to warn the congregants, sorry, the, the castery for the, the doctrine of the faith, that the very liturgy was being placed at the service of trans ideology. I happened to attend the funeral of the daughter of a family in our parish, whom we all knew only had sons. Tragically, the young man who had suffered from mental health issues throughout his life had gone to university and then transitioned to being a girl and sub subsequently killed himself. At the funeral, the local bishop who celebrated the liturgy 
fully acknowledged the young man's supposed new gender. He prayed, saints of God, come to her aid, hasten to meet her angels of the Lord. To an extent, to an extent I sympathised with the impossible pastoral situation in which the bishop had been placed. But St Paul asks us to preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, entreat, rebuke in all patience and doctrine. Archbishop Wilson in Southwark, in his recent brush with the LGBTQ juggernaut, has seen him attacked by literally everyone from the Catholic Education Service to his local MP to Ofsted for the shocking crime of not wanting the author of gay pornographic teen novels to speak at one of his own Catholic schools. One which, by the way, was in the past the great source of vocations for the diocese, no longer. I've often wondered whether the next whether at the CTS the next knock on the door or letter from the authorities will demand that we check our thinking for publishing the church's traditional teaching on homosexuality. Yet we must persevere because as the rest of the world and politics and academia and civil society and the established church all merrily hold hands and skip off the reservation, I'm increasingly struck by the truth of Belloc's phrase in his Essays of a Catholic. The Catholic Church is the one thing on this earth that is different from all the others. It has a personality and a force. It is recognised and when recognised is violently loved or hated. It is the Catholic Church. Within that household, the human spirit has roof and hearth. Outside it is the night. Only the Church is in full touch with reality. One could say that Belloc is the poet of unity. Not of ecumenism, that's for sure. I'll quote for the sheer pleasure of it, his ballad of the Heresiarchs. <coughs> Heretics all, whoever you may be, in Tarb or Neem or over the sea, you never shall have good words from me. Caritas non conturbat me. But Catholic men that live upon wine are deep in the water and frank and fine. Wherever I travel, I find it so. Benedicamus Domino. Rather, he is the poet of the unity of the <coughs> sacred and profane and our life of faith and our ordinary life, of a cigar smoked before Mass and placed under a stone and then lit up again at the end of Mass. For Belloc, the idea of reserving his Catholic beliefs for one part of his life while living the rest of it like the world around him was unthinkable. To conclude, I was heartened by a long article, a kind of manifesto of the Catholic artist written by Michael O'Brien, painter and author of, among other books, the apocalyptic novel, Father Elijah. Writing to young artists and authors, he says, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, not to bow before the spirit of this world, no matter how benevolently and reasonably it presents itself to you. We have a grave responsibility before God and mankind. The arts can give visible form to aspects of reality, including our faith that are invisible. If an artist is steadily growing in skill, united to God's grace, then new visual words can evoke truths in the human heart, sometimes truths that we have been deprived of by the global social revolution, which has gone very far towards robbing man of his true identity and eternal value. Authentic art can open the path to a person asking the fundamental questions of existence. Who am I? Why am I? Where am I going? What is my value? 
works that are implicitly religious can be very fruitful in this regard. However, there is as great a need for overtly Christian works um, that help reveal the glory of creation and the immensity of the good news of revelation. In a, in a historical era that overwhelmingly denies the sacredness of life at every turn, that seeks to decapitate creation, so to speak, authentic art can point the way to a true restoration. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating and podcast on the platform you are using. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation.